Hey everyone, welcome back to Too Authentic. My name is Jazz and on Too Authentic we talk about real and relevant issues in an authentic way. Sometimes maybe too authentic for some. Today I have the lovely Dr. Anissa Sharif here with me. We're going to be discussing some of the pressures and some of the strategies that South Asian women can use when navigating life as immigrants. Dr. Anissa, I'm just going to pass it over to you so you can introduce yourself and let everyone know what you're about, if you don't mind. Sure, yes. I am a clinical psychologist and um, I've done a lot of research um, on the South Asian culture, especially kind of uh, family and cultural conflicts within um you know, par between parents and their children and some of the things of, around navigating bicultural identities when you're trying to balance kind of more than one culture, both your family culture yeah. as well as the one you're growing up in. And then I work as well in the NHS in the UK um, with clients who have lots of different mental health issues okay. as well. Oh, amazing. Dr. Anissa Sharif and I, we actually met on this BBC segment, um, which was part of the Creative Diversity Experience. And when we were doing that, there was so much conversation and we only got to really scratch the surface. So we thought, why not get together and do a podcast episode where we can dive into some of these issues on a little bit of a deeper level. So what I'm going to start off with is after I'd put out the call out, by the way, we got so many questions, so I haven't been able to get them all. We might not even get through them all, but we're going to do our best today. Um, let's just start off with speaking about mental health and therapy as general in the South Asian culture. In some ways, I feel, and I'm sure that you would agree, it's still considered a bit of a taboo, right? What's your experience been navigating this? Definitely. It still is very much stigmatized. It's very much seen as a last resort. And I think that comes back to, um, you know, keeping things in the family, this kind of cultural mm -hmm. belief around we don't air our dirty laundry in front of others. We keep it all in the family, you know, maintaining that yeah. kind of face in society. Um, and I think that even goes beyond mental health issues to uh, just anything that involves the brain. Like I've heard about this coming up with, um, you know, people who are having seizures, you know, oh, don't, don't, we don't want anyone to know that this person has epilepsy because, you know, it's the brain. So, um, okay. you know, it's very interesting that way. And you know what? It's, it's really funny that you touched on that because there was a question where somebody had asked, why do you think that mental health issues are treated even worse in the South Asian culture? Because they're hidden even more, right? Yes, okay, there's a taboo mm -hmm. attached to going to therapy in the first place, but there's also a taboo with being diagnosed with something. And what do you, where do you think that actually forms from? Where do you think it comes from? Yeah, I think it just comes from this idea that there, it's seen as part of your brain functioning. So, it, you know, maybe a sense that this person is broken, they're damaged in some way. Whereas if you've got a medical problem and you go to the doctor, um, there's a lot, you know, in in South Asian countries, they were there's a history of going to the doctor for these kinds of things and yeah. you get medication and you get better, you get treatment. Whereas there's no history of psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists, in those countries there is today but mm. there there wasn't in kind of previous generations so it's all feeling i think still very new as well yeah i, I think i would definitely have to agree with you and i'm not sure but this kind of just came to my head now do you think part of the issue is also because if you go to a doctor and you have like a physical illness it's something that can be fixed right 
but sometimes mental health is an ongoing struggle so it's not really something that you can just fix and nip in the bud it for a lot of us it's part of our everyday life do you think that might have something to do with it as well we're kind of used to like being able to fix stuff <laughs> i think so definitely mm. um and i think that's part you've raised a really important point there you know this these are these are issues that can be very manageable um and in some cases you can completely recover from them uh, but in other cases you know it does flare up from time to time and it is more of an ongoing issue um and it's unpredictable too people are less familiar with a lot of these kinds of conditions than they are with like arthritis or asthma or something like that and that is scary for them yeah i i think you're right and i think even in our segment we had kind of touched on the fact that we might feel that immigrant families try and hold on to parts of their culture because it makes them feel safe right and i think maybe in mental health where it's a topic that maybe there's not much you know re- like not research but awareness of maybe for like the older generation for them it is like a bit of like new waters and because they're not sure they get a little bit more scared and that could be one of the reasons <clears throat> why people are still very um I don't know, not even open to it in some ways, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also they're more likely to accept kind of um, like spiritual explanations. So, yeah. you know, this <laughs> yeah. person's possessed. Um, and in some cases, you know, I'm not trying to knock the spiritual or supernatural explanations people have in their cultures or their religions. And I often work with those when mm-hmm. I've got clients or in therapy who have those beliefs but um in some cases um they've tried that they've gone to like a religious healer or somebody that they look upon in the community as a you know that's acceptable to go to a religious kind of figure um to get their you know a spiritual treatment for these issues but going to a therapist or a psychologist, a psychiatrist, that's completely not okay. So in some cases where they've gone to the, you know, the religious route and it hasn't worked, they're still not necessarily okay with going to, you know, a, a you know, qualified therapist or psychologist um, okay. to look at what might, what else might be going on. I think I think that's a very valid point because in a lot of ways I would say like part of brown girls rising we see that a lot of the parents that are spoken about are very open to their children speaking to you know the priest at the temples mm. or whatever it is for their issues you know and with therapists it's still not very discussed as a clinical psychologist how do you combine both approaches and how can we maybe find some strategies on how like families can become a little bit more open to therapy if we you know consider the environment that we're in so what's kind of worked for you in families that are not really open to counseling or maybe there's something that you can share mm-hmm. on how people can try and bring up these conversations with their parents i th- well i often use the and i try to do some education usually first of all that you know having a mental health condition doesn't make you doesn't make something wrong chemically in your brain oftentimes you know some there are some people who do take medications not everyone does some people just don't have the stra- the coping strategies to manage and that can be um you know worked on through talking therapy and learning some strategies that might be really helpful and then i also sometimes say that you know if you go if you've got something physically wrong with you like your leg is broken or something else is going wrong you go to the doctor and this is no different so sometimes they prefer to look at me as an authority figure 
and they like to use my doctor title. Like I tend to be quite informal, but if that helps people to come in and see me as that kind of expert authority figure, I'll use that if it gets the person through the door, if you know what I mean. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah. And then sometimes I also am open to bringing in those religious people from the community, you know, in my kind of clinical work in the NHS, we work really closely with the religious chaplains. Um, so if we're dealing with clients who are from a different cultural or religious background, they're really helpful to us. So I'll bring all that in if I need to in the session, if it helps us kind of make some progress and open those kind of doors for them. Mm, basically, what, whatever you can to kind of make them a little bit more open to the fact that therapy yeah. might be a solution um, to the issue that they're facing. Um, one thing I also want to say is like in the group, of course, I'm, I'm sure you're, I think you're part of it now as well. And you would have seen the type of conversations that we have in there. A lot of the times I find that South Asian women in particular, based on the experiences of the group and my own as well, we struggle to find a balance between what makes us happy and what makes our family happy. And then to match these two up, sometimes it's impossible and we lose the support of our family. Is there any strategies that you could recommend to kind of like matching these two up or whatever's worked in your experience to make, you know, our parents see that, hey, just because my child is pursuing a path that is different to me, it doesn't mean that this child is now a rebel or is a bad daughter, which I know a lot of women do feel like in this culture and it holds them back. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say, you know, a lot of that kind of struggle is a sign that you're really connected to your family, to your parents, as well as a very normal desire to want to be part of the culture that you're raised in as well. And, you know, sometimes those two things do clash. Um, and I think it's just part of the socialization, right? From birth, we're brought up to believe that we need to make our parents happy. They've done a lot for us. And especially because they've been immigrants a lot of the time, we grow up with those stories about how they had to work so hard. You know, they've lost status in their country of origin. They might be working really low paid jobs when they first move, you know, and they say that, you know, you grow up with the stories of we've done this so that you have a better life. And there's a lot that we grow up with. And I think that's part of this, the self-concept um, in a lot of not just South Asian cultures, just a lot of cultures that emphasize that family loyalty, family unity, that's not a bad thing if you feel like have like you're struggling and you want to kind of please your parents. There's nothing wrong with wanting to please your parents. There's nothing wrong with sacrificing, making a, if you're making a conscious choice to sacrifice what you want to make your family happy. But I think where we run into problems is where you really don't want to sacrifice or have to give up and the parents aren't maybe understanding why certain choices are important to you. And so I think in those situations, that's where the strategies come in. You know, one is not better than the other. You know, if you want to prioritize your own happiness over, you know, what your family expects of you, that's fine. You know, that that is perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with the person who wants to, prioritize what the family wants um 
And I think a, a big part of it is trying to have that dialogue with your family. And not all families are open to that, right? Every family mm -hmm. is different. Sometimes you just can't even go there, you know, where you can get in the room. Um, so sometimes you can sit down and, and try to explain to them. There might be certain situations where you can get a bit creative, you know. So if you want to move out, for example, maybe they'd be more okay with it if it's for university. You know, you want to go away um, to university and live, you know, in that town. Or you got a really good job opportunity in a different town or city, you know. So sometimes there's roots and there's ways you can get creative that kind of balances it a bit. You know, they don't want you to move, you want to move. But there's certain situations that you can negotiate with them and get yourself what you want while also still preserving that relationship with them. And sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes people, um, I do recommend sometimes people bring in it like an older relative that might be more kind of who agrees with you, who's kind of on your side. Maybe it's an older sibling, maybe it's an older cousin, um, you know, an aunt or an uncle that can, you know, because it is such a patriarchal culture sometimes that parents sometimes are maybe more willing to listen if you've got somebody else that they respect or that is part of the family that can kind of um, help you kind of mediate those conversations hmm. as well. Okay. Um, one of the things that you had mentioned is that it's okay for someone to kind of choose to put the needs of the family before their own. Like sometimes this can occur, right? Do you think that this kind of comes from the culture with like itself, how women, we are kind of raised to be self-sacrificing in a lot of ways, right? It's always the woman's duty. Like if, for example, let's take like um, social occasions, okay? Some of the ones that I've seen, some of the ones that the women talk about in the group as well. Women are always the ones cooking. <laughs> the men are always the ones eating first and then we are the ones cleaning up after. And I feel like this is just one little example, but I feel like this thread runs through a lot of the parts of the culture. And this is a struggle that a lot of women face because there is that expectation where we do have to sacrifice our own needs, desires and happiness for the needs of the family. And then this also in some ways leads to a bit of a double life. And that we briefly spoke about that in the diversity um, experience as well, where you kind of compartmentalize yourself and you do get creative in how you kind of put points across, whether you want to move out to be with your friends or to like have a have some freedom, you'll say, oh, it's for my education. And in some ways you get used to like having to lie about parts of yourself that I don't feel that you should. Have you found that experience too in your therapy practice? Oh yeah, lots of times. I've seen that personally as well, as well okay. as professionally. And that's initially what led me into wanting to study this in my graduate school is I was seeing a lot of friends, you know, <laughs> lying about where we yeah. were going. And then they were, you know, went to a club and then they were changing in the car, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah. so that they could kind of come home and, and pretend like they hadn't been where we had actually been. And it is really, it gets exhausting, doesn't it? It's very Trying to tiring. keep track of what you've told to your parents and them then catching you in some kind of lie and, you know, just having to keep on top of everything, right? It becomes a bit of a dangerous game because you're constantly lying to uphold the parts of yourself that you inherently know there is nothing wrong with wanting to spend time with your friends. But because you have to lie about it, you feel like, okay, is this bad? Am I being a bad daughter for lying to my parents? Yeah. 
And another thing I've also found is by having to lie so much to protect parts of yourself that are like normal and okay, it affects your self-esteem and it affects your self-integrity as well because you get so used to lying that it's hard to pull yourself out of these patterns. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's where it comes in where, you know, you, you know, you're having to compartmentalize. You can't integrate these different aspects of your identity, can you? It's like, you know, you get in the house and you're dressing and acting one way and then you get out of the house and you're putting your makeup on and you're changing your clothes yeah. and you're a different way with your friends. And it, it feels, it, it does feel inauthentic, doesn't it? To have to not be able to be open about that with your parents and with your family. And, you know, it doesn't help anything. They, they probably are going to find out at some point and then that can lead to lots more drama and conflict down the road. Um, and so it, it is a struggle and I think parents need to do more to try to understand that they've made a choice to move and by do, making that choice to move from whichever country they've come from they also have to expect that kids are not going to be 100% you know Pakistani or 100% Punjabi or you know whatever that is there's going to be changes and culture also changes over time so these parents left these countries maybe 20 30 years ago and in their mind it's frozen in time so you hit they're the nail on the head there really, you know, exactly what they're thinking. bringing you up the next generation the way they were brought up but if they were bringing you up there now things have completely changed in a lot of these places as well so you you just can't win can you yeah you're absolutely right i do think they've frozen their view of what <laughs> india was or whatever country they were living in yeah. was right and then these kind of same standard expectations are enforced on us and then you talk to your friends that live in these countries and they're like your parents still behave like this what the yeah. heck and i'm like yeah <laughs> that's how it is you know um and i also i think also part of what might also play a role here is how women are seen to be as the bearer or the holder of the family's honor, right? Anything that we do reflects on the family's reputation. And that, I have to be honest, is such a lot of pressure for one person to bear. In some ways, it's, it's drowning because every step you take, it's like, oh my God, whose honor am I going to affect? You live in your own family home as a female for a lot of us in the South Asian culture you don't really feel like it's your home because you're told that one day you're going to get married. So you can't do these things now. But when you get married, you're able to go out and do whatever you want, travel, do whatever you want. So you hold on to this hope, right? And then you get married and you're stuck with your in-laws. And then they're like, um, you have to uphold the honor of our family now. Like I was just watching this um, show. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's on Netflix. It's called A Suitable Girl. It's, uh, have you heard of no, it? I haven't, seen that. I haven't seen that one. No, but I'll have so, to check it out. I watched it after watching that Indian matchmaking show where they had that oh, female from that Mumbai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I a, watched that one. She's in that one as well. And there was a lady in there that said um, before she had gotten married, her husband had promised that she'd be able to work, you know, even after she mm -hmm. got married, that would be fine. They got married six months down the road. He's like, actually, I don't think it's suitable for you to work. Do you know what I mean? So it's like we're always mm -hmm. waiting for like someone else to call the shots in our life. And this, it's painful. Yeah. Like even to speak about it now, you and I can conversate about it, but a lot of people are still stuck in this and they still have to think one decision of mine is going to affect X, Y, Z, so much pressure. And it's hard for a person to then trust their own judgment. 
in your experience, do you have any strategies on how to balance it and how to navigate it? I know it's a big question. Oh my gosh, it's so hard, isn't it? It's like, yeah. it feels like from what you describe, girls are just waiting to start living. Like, when do you get to start living your life? You know, your, your parents sell it to you that you'll be able to do this when you get married. And then you do get married and the in-laws just crush that right away. Um, and I think that is a really, really tough one, isn't it? And yeah. there's so much variability as well. Like, I think when in some, it, it also depends on whether you're living in a joint system after you get married, you know, more and more families these days and couples are, are making a case to live on their own, you know, and more and more successfully. So I think that's a big one. If you can find a way to get married and live you know, maybe near, near the in-laws, but not in the same space that will help. But yeah, when you're still living at home with anyone, it is a lot of pressure. And, you know, I think that's a really tough one to navigate. Um, and different things work for different people, depending on what the family situation is, and, okay. and what the parents are actually how receptive they are. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of it will come down to gently challenging some of these expectations and I, I use the word gently because you know if you go in there like all guns blazing you know it's probably going to get completely shut down so I use this word creative not so that people will hide aspects of themselves but if you think about the long game you know you want to mm -hmm. kind of get to this place of being able to have more freedom, you know, finding ways where maybe your parents are more receptive to certain behaviors. So maybe, for example, if if you have a, uh, you know, if you're still in school or doing your studies and you want to go out or you want to meet up with a group of people, you know, if it's for like working on group projects and things like that, they might be, oh, well, it's for education, you know, so that might be more acceptable to them. Um, in other families, you might be able to sit down and sit and, and talk more openly with your parents, you know, and they might so be a depends. bit more okay with it. And it also depends on also if you've got older siblings who've blazed a bit of a path for you. I find that younger siblings sometimes have more a bit more freedom um, than older siblings depending on kind of how things have been in their family a moment um, of silence for all the eldest kids out there <laughs> who've had to like you do all the hard heavy lifting yeah. um, to make things a bit easier for the younger ones yeah and it's it's hard work and there's so many variables it's so complex mm -hmm. um, yeah but that is I think that is you know, you've really spoken about something really important that girls have all this pressure on them. Um, I think I th I've heard that boys do have it in some things. So marriage, for example, I know of lots of, uh, of young South Asian men who have wanted to marry someone and who've had to go along with an arranged marriage because yep. that's just what their family wants. Uh, but they do overall get a lot more freedoms that, you know, girls don't get. Um, and that's really hard. And then there's favoritism as well, you know, yes. where a lot of girls say that their brothers are favored. 
not just with freedom, but you know, it's like the mom Everything. will want to make all this food for the for the boy, and she'll tell you know, and they'll they'll get away with not picking up after themselves and not having mm-hmm. to do a lot of chores in the house and other things, and yeah, and yep. whereas the girls are having to do all that, so there are these double standards that are that do need to be challenged. Definitely. And I think you brought up a really good point that the men in this culture, they do suffer as well, even though the system is sort of designed to serve them. Because, for example, with the example that you mentioned now, this person couldn't pursue their relationship because they were expected to have an arranged marriage, right? I feel like it takes away from even the males, like their own decision making, like they're not able to still make their own choices because they know okay, it's my family that I have to think about as well. And they might also be used to like everyone always doing things for them as well, right? So I think it takes away from their own independence and their ability to rely on themselves with little things like housework, cooking, or whatever it may be, you know? So I think the system, maybe it affects us all differently, but it definitely does also hold back some of the men in our culture Mm -hmm. too, that's for sure. It's not just limited to women. And the impact. And I, I also think it's not just the South Asian culture. I've heard about this coming up mm. in Arab cultures. Yes. Um, I've heard about it in the Chinese culture. Mm. So I think it's yeah. important to also, there's any, any culture that emphasizes collectivism, you know, that family loyalty, this kind of clan culture, some African cultures as well. Yeah. They're all struggling with very similar issues. issues. Okay, okay. One question for me is like, how do you then how do you then look after the individual in these cultures like how do you mm. not drown amongst this collectivist yeah. culture where everyone is always putting the needs of everyone else before their own and it sort of becomes a norm so that when somebody mm-hmm. steps away from it it's very common for females to be heard mm-hmm. oh she's too western oh she's too educated and that's why she's like this like how do we <laughs> navigate situations <laughs> like that you know because these are things that yeah. a lot of us have heard i have to be honest <laughs> I know. I, I And I'm right there with you. I've heard yeah. all these things myself, yeah. too. And it's so hard. And I think part of it comes from within, you know, having that sense of, I guess, self-esteem and self-worth and knowing that your worth is not attached to only what other people want from you and your ability to live up to their expectations but that it also comes from you just being a human being of value. You know, you don't, it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. You mm-hmm. have worth just because you're here. And, um, you know, you, you need to have compassion for yourself as well as you're going yeah. through it. Um, you know, having these kind of conflicts is a sign that you're an empathic, caring person. You know, you're not just saying, screw my family, I'm doing whatever I want, regardless. The fact that you, you know, you're actually sitting there distressed, you know, about what to do and how to kind of navigate these life choices shows that, you know, you've got so much value. And so, you know, because you're actually caring and thinking about how your actions impact others but at the same time just because you recognize that this is not what other people want you to do doesn't mean that you shouldn't do those things or do what you feel is right for you at the same time but it does take time you know Mm -hmm. you've got to be patient with yourself 
And sometimes, you know, when your parents have always been kind of criticizing you, doubting you, mm-hmm. it makes you really doubt yourself, you know, and you yes. think, well, can I really do this? You know, you've been told that all your life that you can't do anything without their them kind of guiding you through life. Um, <clears throat> that you can sometimes internalize that voice that kind of becomes the voice in your head. And so it takes time to build up this other voice that's mm-hmm. this, com- this self-compassionate voice really this positive voice that's motivating you forward and reminding you that you you know you do have the right to not go with what they want to do want you to do and you and there's nothing wrong with that so that kind yes. of voice that's going to validate yourself if, the, if you're not getting it from other people it takes to time it to, to yeah. do it for yourself you know and it's hard because you've not grown up with that voice yeah and you know what you're absolutely right when you say that like sometimes you're told that you know without us without mommy and daddy's blessings nothing good can happen or whatever and you kind right, of yeah, yeah, believing yeah, this, yeah, right yeah so you're like shit every action i make has to be approved by them so then in some ways you take away from your own autonomy and confidence in your own choices right and i feel like i'm just making a connection here you can tell me you're the professional here you can tell me what you think but i feel like this also impacts us like when we go after these like unconventional career choices do you know what i mean like sometimes it's hard for us to step away from what everyone else is doing because this is like the five or six careers that are celebrated and then you have someone that wants to do something different and people are like oh are you sure mm, you know because they don't know about it and i guess my question here is how do you cultivate trust within yourself so self-trust and self-worth when you're in, a, in an environment where this is not this is not emulated like you can't see your elders performing these acts of like self-care and all these things like, some of this stuff is still very new to a lot of people in this yeah. culture like, so how do you do these things if you can't see these happening in your home and how do you help other people become more open to these things I guess mm. that's a lot of questions in one <laughs> <laughs> well to start with I guess yourself really is I think it's just small things, small steps to, you know, towards self-care. So self-care is a word that's used a lot these days sometimes, you know, and, you know, use some self-care. But what does that really mean? It can mean so many different things. So it Mm -hmm. might be, you know, just taking a few deep breaths. It might be, you know, it might be doing one something you really like doing, like a hobby or something, you know. It might be finding an outlet for yourself, like, you know, where you can get out some of the anger or some of the negative feelings that you're going through. It might be journaling, it might be art, it might be poetry, you know, just starting with basic things Mm -hmm. um, that remind yourself that you are an individual, you know, you do have you know, you're just reminding yourself that I'm here, you know, because sometimes we get so caught up going through the motions, we're not even really thinking about this person going through these steps. And so doing kind of just basic self care as a starting point, just Mm -hmm. reminds yourself that I'm not focusing for the it could be even just a few minutes, you know, for these few moments, I'm just tuning in towards myself, or I'm doing something that's nurturing myself. Um, and that builds a sense of a little bit of a sense of self-esteem, self-worth, mm-hmm. and then you build on it from there, you know, and hopefully, you know, you have some positive people in your life like friends or um, maybe a mentor of some kind, a, you know, a teacher that you really like 
can chat with or you know a school counselor or a you know in univer if you're in university there's those kind of services as well but positive people who do lift you up a bit and yeah. give you a bit of that buffer it's really about building that resilience and it mm -hmm. takes time especially if you've been beaten down all your life you know um, yeah kind of in that family system because in your in a way you're also kind of leading the way of forming like self-care routines like you might be the first person in your family to start actually thinking okay what am I going to do to look after myself today and I know a lot of us are very creative like I speak for myself I know when I was living at home I would spend extra time in the bathroom just to have time to myself like they probably thought I had like all sorts yeah. of bowel issues or something <laughs> in there you know you do what you can to get that time to yourself And a lot of us spend extra time in our car before we go inside because we're like, yeah. okay, I have to center myself before I walk into this situation, whatever it is you're walking into, you know? So in that way, it's hard. And in some ways, self-care is still seen as a selfish act by some people because you, you speak about the collectivist culture where it's like the needs of the family trump your own in a lot of ways, right? But then you're trying to take time for yourself and it's like, it feels wrong if that makes sense, you know, because you're not used yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is one I've also struggled with too, you know, yeah. um, if you put on a face mask in the bathroom, that's probably also, oh, you love yourself, you know, like I've, you know, oh, you must really love yourself. You know, you're painting your nails yeah. and you're doing the, like, these are normal things. Oh, <laughs> you know, you're not spending all day staring at yourself in the mirror, are you? You know, there's a huge difference. And this is where I think boundaries do come in sometimes mm -hmm. you know if you know that someone's telling you something crazy like oh well you really are in love with yourself you know because you're spending five or ten minutes to you know to do something for yourself that makes you feel good I think this is where the boundaries can come in where you can say actually no you know yes I do love myself everyone should love themselves <laughs> yeah I, I think I think I think so as well but you know what it's hard to form boundaries we're in like in these families like I feel like a lot of them are like codependent everyone is like enmeshed everyone knows everything yes. about, everything is going on all the time so how do you like form a boundary without someone feeling offended yeah how do you do that <laughs> a million dollar question <laughs> I think that you can't sometimes I think part of setting boundaries means somebody's gonna get offended and being okay if they do because you're not responsible for their reactions you're only responsible for how you deliver that message so I think sometimes people get confused with boundaries and they get confused with being assertive and aggressive so I think you know a lot of times people when they think okay I need to set boundaries um but then they may go about it in a really kind of more of an aggressive way. Well, I don't care if you like it or you're not, you don't, I'm just doing it anyways. And, and that can come across as disrespectful, can't it? Like if you're saying that to your family, and I think you may get to that point where you have to say it in that way. But <clears throat> I think if you're first starting to set a boundary and they're not used to you speaking up for yourself in that way, there's a way to go about it that's more assertive and not, not, super aggressive so <clears throat> you know yeah. kind of s setting the boundary but still respecting them as a person and going about it in a way that look I'm going to be sensitive to their feelings you know they're going to get hurt by this um or they may may you know there may be a way to to lessen that hurt depending on how I package that so it may look like something like you know 
<clears throat> you may not like me putting this face mask on in the bathroom or painting my nails, but I don't think that means that I'm arrogant or that I'm in love with myself. It's something, it's important to me. It makes me feel good about myself. So I'm just going to take the five, 10 minutes I need to do that. Yeah. Okay. So it's about... me, so it's a softer way of delivering yeah, okay. that same message, if you know what I mean. And it's they may still go off on one and not, you know, um, they may still kind of curse you out or just say, "Oh, you're in love with yourself," and walk storm off or whatever it is they're going to do. But in that case, you know that you've said it in a way that respects them as a person. Maybe you've not gotten that respect back. But then however they want to react to that message is on them. It's not your job to then catch, you know, and 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 make them feel better about what, what it is you're doing. Yeah. Um, because okay. you've delivered that message in a respectful way while respecting yourself and what you want to do as yeah. well. I, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I'm a believer in respect should be given when respect is actually given to you as well, right? Because I feel like sometimes it's like, held over our head, we are elders, you should respect us no matter what. And this is the reason that a lot of us suffer silently, right? These kind of things are like held over our head. And earlier you had mentioned something about like how parents always talk about, you know, we sacrifice a lot to bring you to this land, etc., etc. But I feel like at the end of the day, they made a decision for themselves too. They like there is still they still considered themselves in those decisions. They didn't move just because the children want to have a good life. I mean, just in some way it's for themselves in a way too, right? But I feel like a, a, an issue that a lot of us struggle with is these sacrifices are held over our heads, right? <laughs> Everything we do, what about how I did all this for you? And like they use kind of tactics like guilt and shame to control our behavior. Well, what are your views on the use of these um, issues? So like guilt and shame and how it kind of forms, I don't know, how it's such a big part of the culture. Like, let's just keep it real. It's huge. <laughs> Why do you think it yeah. exists? I think it's because those are the only tactics they've experienced themselves growing up. Okay. So okay. a lot of these parents, it's like a multi-generational thing, isn't it? Where they've, ha that's most of, you know, kind of in the culture more kind of traditionally, they had children as an investment, right? So, um, you know, if you're thinking about a generation or two ago, it was like to work on their farms or to, you know, the, it wasn't about material wealth. It was your children were your wealth because they're going to grow up, make you proud and take care of you when you're old. And it was like literally like an investment, right? Do you think that's and like, so, a, like a, a selfish reason to have children though? Like if you're using them as an investment to look after you in your old age, like what? Yeah. What the heck is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think definitely it was, but I think it was also just maybe the the culture and the the situation a generation or two ago was very different. There was like a higher mortality rate. Um, you know, in those countries, they didn't have mm. like pensions and other things like that to help take care of them. And it was just the way things were done for so many. So a lot of the things in cultures right now they don't make sense to us, but. Yeah. They usually originally when they evolved usually had a purpose to them, but now the, the purpose is gone, right? Societies changed, cultures evolved, but some of these practices have not. And so I think this is where that comes from, though. They've grown up and, and, and these parents today who are still using these kind of guilt and shame tactics with their own kids, they've never experienced that 
a lot of times that emotional kind of bond with their own parents. It was all about what they were going to do for their parents. And they're kind of a sandwich generation in that way because they grew up with that. They didn't challenge that. They probably did kind of go with the grain. And now they're the first generation where they've moved abroad. Their children are growing up with a different culture. And the children are not going to go along with their plans for the future. You know, you they are going to, some of them will, but some of them are going to challenge that rightfully so, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think they, they just, that's all they, they don't have the parenting strategies and the mindset a lot of times because they haven't grown up with it themselves <clears throat> to use anything other than guilt and shame to control and keep their children in line because that's what they grew up with. That's what's always worked in their families and what they've seen around them. So okay. when they see their child, you know, doing something they don't approve of, they feel threatened. They think this child is going to get corrupted, you know, by the Western culture. And they think we need to make them feel guilty and shame them. So they come back into the family fold and they don't, you know, that's really harmful, isn't it? And very, yeah. It can be really damaging to a person's mental health, you know, um, especially if they don't have the resilience and the people around them to kind of lift them up and give them, yeah. a, you know, a different perspective. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you're, you're saying, that these tactics must have been done to them. And that's why they are then following and using the same tactics on their children. At the same time, I think there needs to be a level of personal responsibility as well. Of course. If you've suffered in the same way when your parents use these tactics on you and, you know, you would have faced, maybe you were miserable because your parents wanted you to do career X, Y, Z and you followed along and then you do the same thing to your kids. Like for me, it would be like, okay, if this was done to me and it didn't feel good, why would I then do the same thing to my kid? Like, I feel like there has yeah. to, yes, we can say the culture, this is how it is, the conditioning is there, this is how they grew up. Maybe they don't even know like a lot about all of these things that we're talking about, but there has to, at some point, there has to be some responsibility that people have to take, you know? Otherwise, it all falls on the yeah. child, all on the child's yeah. shoulders. Yeah, of course, they they do. And unfortunately, though, a lot of some of them will take, you know, will learn from those mistakes, and they will kind of come to kind of see that and reflect on how they've impacted their child. And others just won't. And so if your family is just like that, they're just not never going to take the time to reflect on their own responsibility. Um in you know in how they've affected you then what you know then you know you you can't force them them to do that can you and so yep. how do we then just take care of ourselves and try to make peace with the fact that our parents are never going to be the parents that we need them to be or want them to be yeah and 100% I think acceptance is a, is a big issue like mm. at some like you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped you can't help them see something that they're not ready for maybe it'll take them 10 years maybe it'll just never happen but I feel like you know in my own experience like as you know I've been disowned by my family for my interracial relationship right and a lot of the women in our group are going through the same sort of thing disowned for various reasons and sometimes people will say to you I pray and hope that your family will come around one day I hope that you know they'll understand which I understand is like, it's got good intentions behind it. Like, of course you hope that. Like, no one wants to be disowned by their family, let's be real. But at the mm -hmm. same time, I feel like when people hold on to this hope, 
you're holding on to something that might just never happen. Like your parents might just never change. And then what are you going to do? Just keep like trying to gain their approval in other ways. Like in, in some ways, then your own decisions are still tied to what other people's other people would feel about it and whether they'd approve of you. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like holding on to hope as well, sometimes it, it doesn't work and acceptance is important with these issues. If we want to preserve our mental health, we have to find a way to be like, okay, I know what I'm doing. It's not harming anyone physically. Maybe it causes in like unintentional harm where they feel like you've gone against the culture and it's too much for them to deal with or whatever it may be. But I feel like if you're not causing real physical harm to someone or doing something to actually hurt someone else and it's more a decision for your own happiness, joy, freedom and peace, then I don't think you can go wrong, you know? And I don't think that it's fair when people say, um, you know, I hope your parents will come around and see that you're not actually a bad daughter. They just need time to adjust, you know? Right, They'll adjust yeah. and you have to adjust. Yeah. And this word is thrown around a lot. It makes it <laughs> hard, for people, <laughs> hard for people to trust their own choices, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're you're so right about that. And I mean, you've got so much, I think, wisdom to share on this from your own personal experience and how you've kind of navigated that and come to terms with that in your own family, in your situation. Um, and it's true. Like, I, I think at some point you have to, there's, no, you know, for some, re, for some time you might have that hope, right? That your family yes. will come around and that's only natural. I mean, you've had probably had good times with these people too. They've raised you. There's been, there's so much history there. And they're the first people that you had these that feeling of attachment to right and that it can be so powerful over the lifetime but at the same time there comes a point where it's more harmful to your own mental health to keep that hope open or for people to you know very well-intentioned well-meaning people trying to make you feel better (laughs) to say that right because at some point you you may have to close the door on that you know maybe the family situation has been too abusive too hurtful and you you're just past that point um where you can open the door to let them back into your life even if they want to come back into your life but they haven't yeah. changed yeah you know then what right exactly and yeah yeah sorry sorry gone I think you have um, to prepare for all these scenarios that you've mentioned, for sure. Yeah. So I think if you are going to take that step to kind of, you know, leave your family, you know, thinking through what if they don't come around, you know, what if they don't miss me enough to change or reflect on what they've done, you know, am I pre- am I okay with kind of taking this path, even if worst case scenario, nothing changes and I never hear from them again? You know, exactly. and just trying to work through that and prepare yourself for that possibility and how you can make yourself okay with that, how you can let go of this feeling of, as you said, needing to still kind of have that acceptance from them. You'd like to have the acceptance from them, but you don't need it, you know? Exactly. And there's a difference between those two, isn't there? There's nothing wrong with wanting people to approve of your relationship or your life choices, but do you really need that to live the life that you want to live? And I think you're absolutely right. Like, it's important to consider these scenarios, and it's also important to ask yourself, like, am I going to regret any of my choices? Like, am I going to regret just 
you know, squashing my own desires and then following the path that other people want just so that I can have the support of my family and I can have them in my life? Or am I going to do what makes me happy but then risk losing their support? And then it makes you think, like, if someone threatens you with disownment, like, if you do X, Y, Z, you're dead to us. We can't speak to you anymore. We can't because of society. We can't show our faith, whatever it may be then is that person's love really unconditional? Like, isn't parental love supposed to be, like, unconditional? Like, you gave birth to that child. Don't you want the best for that child? Like, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's hard to... I th- yeah, I think it's a different cultural lens because I think in the traditional South Asian culture, traditionally, you know, because parents are having this child, these children as an investment for their own future... And they haven't grown up with, they they themselves have not grown up with their parents loving them in that way. They've never, they may have loved them, but they've never told them, I love you. They've never hugged them, maybe. They've never shown that physical affection. They just completely may lack that in themselves. And Mm. yes, they should reflect on that and think about, well, do I really want that in my, for my own children? But they're just, they might you know, they, they're just coming at it from such a different perspective. I think in Western cultures, we have this, we grow up with this idea of unconditional love. Our parents love us unconditionally. They just want us to be happy. But in the traditional kind of South Asian cultures, it's not that way. It, let's just say it really can be conditional, not in every family. There are parents who don't do love their children unconditionally. But I'm speaking more, I guess, for the for the people who are having these struggles, right? So the love can be conditional and they often have more loyalty towards their their own parents and siblings than their own children and husband or wife. That's like, so sad. The, <laughs> the loyalty is still to their to their own parents. And so when they're thinking about what will other people say, it's usually, yes, it's the wider community, but it's first of all, like, what will my own parents and my own siblings say? Because it's such a, hierarchical cultural structure isn't it so that even though these people are adults with their own they're married they've got their own children but yet they're still looking to their own parents for guidance and approval and so it's like that's what I mean it's very multi-generational they're still not in full control of you know their own children and their own households and it's only when they themselves become grandparents and that other generation is gone that they then get that control that they've been waiting all their life like as you were saying earlier you know when do I get to live my life it's basically when you become a grandmother so when you become a grandmother then you become the matriarch in the family and then you have the decision making power not just for yourself but for your children and your grandchildren and who they're going to marry what a hot so. mess so you have to wait till you become a grandmother to have any control over your life and those around you oh what a mess but you know what i've never heard of it this way like i really like the way you put it because i think it does ring true right because even like for example when our parents say i can't accept you because of what will my elder brother say or what will your grandpa say or edit etc etc they're still thinking about all these people that are like elder to them or they have to save face for right like they don't think about hey this is my kid like away from all this society i want this kid to be happy and i think this is where all these techniques like shame and guilt come in as well to somehow control the behavior and this is a little bit of an unrelated topic but just speaking about the topic shame i'm not sure if you've seen the documentary that came out recently called because we are girls 
Have you heard of yes. this one? Yes. Yes. Have you I watched, watched it? it? Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. so, such a hard so watch, sad, really. Isn't it? Yeah. Such a brave story. It was very, very hard to watch. And one of the scenes that stuck out to me was the conversation that um, one of the daughters had with their father, and she basically was sitting there crying, saying, "All I ever wanted you to say is." What do you, what, what can, how can I support you? Are you okay? You know, and I didn't get that. You don't even look at me. You don't even look at me in the eye because you carry so much shame for what happened to a young child, you know? And in these situations, it's really hard for me to have empathy for someone's cultural conditioning because I'm sitting there getting so triggered and annoyed. Like, how can this father say this to this kid? <laughs> it wasn't her fault, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I had very similar reactions. It was so heartbreaking, wasn't it? To watch yeah, her cry in front of everyone in her family. And there's still nothing like there was just this blank face he had up. Right. And, and the mom you could see was going to her and, and, you know, holding her and apologizing. So you could see something there from the mom. But yet the dad was still rooted in his own. And I was th sitting there thinking, this has happened to all of your daughters, you know, not just one, all of them, you know, there has to be a point where you sit and think then. But the, you know, as I was watching it, the conclusion I came to is if he did that, if he, if he did apologize, if he did start to look at his own personal responsibility, that's when he wouldn't be able to look himself in the mirror. Because when you have to admit that you failed as a, as a parent yeah. to protect your children, that is really painful. So, I mean, these are all defense mechanisms, yeah. aren't they? He's protecting his own ego, his own self, self-esteem, isn't he? And uh, yeah, exactly. I, th I think you're right. He would have to face the truth of, hey, maybe I wasn't able to pr protect my child. But then, you know, we think about like, I know it's a very heavy topic to discuss, but like s sexual abuse, right? Women often, we are, we are blamed. Like even in the, in the documentary, you would have seen, oh, we told you not to sit near him. We told you don't be around him. Like, how do we explain situations like this? Because I know some people will say that, you know what, they just grew up in a different time. That's how they were treated. But at a certain point, like that, that's got to be some, we have to call that the bullshit too, because that's not right. Like it's a child, right? How do we, how do we find a way to process these kind of things? Like, where do you think this actually comes from? Or what are you, what are your experiences with it? Well, I think, I mean, I totally agree with you on that. When it, you know, I think when it comes to situations like that, abuse of any kind, sexual, physical, emotional, verbal, you know, it definitely there's a need, I think, for education mm -hmm. in the community, you know, as a first step that these things, it's not just the child isn't, you know, by saying something like that, we shouldn't have sat next to this child. You're sexualizing the child, aren't you? So um, fucked up. <laughs> Sorry for my friend, but it's, I know oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's, it's hard to even like wrap your mind around that kind of thinking, isn't it? It's so, yes. it's so horrifying to us, but for them. Um, so I think education is a first step. Like we need, if it, you know, they may not want to come to get that education from like, <laughs> they may not want to go to therapy and look at themselves in that way, but it starts with the community elders. I think those people like 
the religious figures, right? That they would that they would respect, that they would go to. They need that training themselves, that education, so that if people are, you know, if they are asked to get involved in some of these situations, um, or give talks, you know, during congregations and services, these topics need to be talked about openly in the community and it has to probably come from those type of figures who are respected, you know, mm. as a starting point. So I think education is a huge part of it. And and that's when you start to, I think when you get, cause, because they're always looking for approval, right? Yeah. You know, they want, they want approval for their thinking. So who is the, mo- the person that they respect the most? Probably these people who are, you know, religious figures yeah. that they're more likely to, you know, go to if they have a personal problem. So I think a lot of that is just education and talking and starting to talk about these issues and explain that this is not right. And I think finding ways where even in in the religion or in the culture that wouldn't be supported you know that's Mm. more of a family thinking isn't it you know like let's just you know keep this quiet because our family name will be ruined right if if this comes out everyone will start talking about us but I don't know of any religion that supports abuse of a child you know so I think it's approaching them in that way as a starting point is where it starts really yeah and also i think it's important to add on here in some ways like the honor of a family is placed in a woman's vagina like that is the holy honor of this family so in some ways like if someone violates that child in this case it's like an attack on your family honor or something and this is maybe why he couldn't even look at this poor person in the in the eyes and it's it's really it was very heartbreaking to watch like for me i haven't even fully reflected on all of my thoughts about what i watch but i feel like that documentary is really important because it showed things that are not really spoken about like these kind of conversations they're just not spoken about you know they're still like oh hidden behind doors or you know they would have probably preferred they didn't even get out to society but hey these things happen and we need to start talking about these otherwise nothing is going to change there's no shame for that child it's not that child's fault at all you know no and and you're so right about that that's the first step the only way we can destigmatize these kind of taboo topics is by talking about it like if we start showing and the community starts showing that we're not afraid to talk about this openly there may be people who shy away from that and don't want any part of that but the more we we bring it into like you know normal discussion the more people will you know you'll catch more people who will start to think well you know maybe that thinking isn't right maybe there is something i should be thinking differently about this yeah i think i think you're absolutely right to destigmatize these things we need to speak about these things because even when it comes to, like, for example, sexual abuse, disownment, any of the taboos in society, things that are not traditionally spoken about because they're viewed as like an attack on the family's honor or it makes us look bad, etc. We have to drop this shit. Like, <laughs> enough. <laughs> we're suffering enough. It's important to start talking about these things. I think, and I think that's what we're doing here today as well. We're talking about these issues which some people still don't speak about, you know, and I think, and I think it's important. Like, your role... I know that you speak a lot about culturally responsive therapy as well. And I think that's important. You have to take the culture into account for therapy to be effective. Because as we know, South Asian culture, so many layers, it's like a bloody onion. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think these are the we have to normalize these conversations, yes. you know. Um, that's going to be the first step. And and the shame that's attached. I think regardless of the culture, any any victim of sexual abuse has that shame and doesn't want to come forward and is hesitant to, you know, have that come out because they do, anyone will question, you know, did, is there some fault in me that this happened to me? That's all yeah. part of their processing. But then when you add in the cultural layer on top, it adds an additional layer of shame because they know in most situations or in a lot of situations, if they tell someone it's it's going to be like let's just quash this you know we don't need to talk about this anymore they're not going to be supported in a lot of cases to go to the police and take that further mm -hmm. you're absolutely right and in a lot of the cases the woman is blamed what were you wearing why were you talking yeah. to this person etc yeah. etc et we, we yeah. all know we've all heard over the years in different situations you know like even in things like catcalling, why were you wearing that or whatever? And it just goes on and on. But I think you're absolutely right. Like to destigmatize de these issues, we've got to start speaking about it. And I'm glad that we had this conversation today. I think we've, we are almost at that one hour mark and we'll wrap <laughs> it up. You hear the door open. Well, perfect timing. Um, would you, do you have any final thoughts or any final things that you would like to say before we wrap up today's session? Um, I think, I think this is the start of a really important conversation. And I just think that, you know, there's so much more we, we could probably talk about and get yes, into. Of course. Um, but it's, you know, I think this is a really important beginning. And um, thank you for having me on. And hopefully it was helpful to a few people. Yeah. No, thank you thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate your professional insight and having this open conversation because i do think it's going to help a lot of people so that was great thank you so much for your time no problem we'll call Thanks, it now Jess. and maybe we can have you on again i know we didn't even get to half the questions yeah. like expected but we can see what we do <laughs> <laughs> we just get all so right. caught up don't we there's so much to talk about yeah yes all right thank you dr anisa sharif for joining us today and thank you all for tuning in for watching for listening if you like today's podcast or if you have anything that you'd like to discuss or if you have any questions for us please drop a comment and let us know if you liked it There'll be more episodes coming soon and I plan to get more experts on different topics so that we can help women and brown girls rise everywhere. So have a good one, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Anissa, again, and thank you all for tuning in.